Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at the 2024 playtest for the Player's Handbook Playtest 7 from Wizards of the Coast. There's a new Kickstarter for fantasy side quests and NPC decks we're going to take a look at. There is now 5e content available on Demi. Uh, I'm going to take a look at a new big topic that I'm focusing on, which are adventure pitfalls. What are ways that our games, our sessions, and our adventures tend to fall down? How do we focus on why they fall down? What kind of common things get we can see? We're going to dive into that a little bit. I'm going to talk about calling for checks, something that I've been learning while I've been playing Baldur's Gate 2. We're going to talk about calling for checks, something that I've been doing in my game, but something that I saw happening in Baldur's Gate 3, which helped reinforce the way that I tend to run a game and what that means. And we're going to cover our first batch of questions from the Patreon Q&A. And we're going to cover our first batch of questions from the September 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. The Lazy RPG Talk Show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want access to things like the City of Arches sourcebook, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, and a whole bunch of exclusive stuff, you too can become a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a really, really great deal, and it's a great way to support me. You can find a link to that in the show notes. This past week, Wizards of the Coast released a new playtest, a new player's handbook playtest, playtest 7. Rumor is that the time when we start to see DM playtests are going to be around playtest 10. I think that is because they are publishing the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual later than the Player's Handbook. What they said was that they're printing so many copies of the Player's Handbook that they can't print all three at once, that they're going to have to print them in three separate batches which means it'll be a couple months, which means that in theory, they have a couple months to work on the Monster Manual and a couple months to work on the Dungeon Master's Guide before they work on the Player's Handbook. Another thing that I've heard them say, I haven't heard them say it for this one, but I've heard them talk about that with playtesting, which is that playtesting player material is harder than playtesting GM material. Because first, for a few reasons, the only really mechanical crunchy bits that GMs really have are monsters. And you can play test monsters and that's important. And hopefully we'll start to see them play testing monsters. But they also have been testing monsters like crazy already in all of the other books that they've been publishing. Monster mechanics are less crunchy than player, than character focused mechanics are definitely. I actually think they're right about that. And that's because if a, if a monster's bad, we can just fix it. And, and we have fixed it many times. If a And if a monster doesn't work out, we don't have to run it again. We can either find a new version of it or tweak it or whatever. We don't have to worry about the monster as much. But when character stuff isn't working right, it's going to affect our whole game. If a character, if a player picks a character with a certain subclass or a certain combination of abilities and it really makes the game less fun, that could exist as long as they continue to run that character. In other words, like, the the you know the lack of the word once per turn on a paladin's smite or on a monk's stunning strike have had huge detrimental effects on the game for 10 years not having that word on the like the intellect devourer not having a way to get rid of its ability that its detrimental ability hardly anybody's ever really talked about it they just you just house rule it and you move on and you're not fighting intellect devourers constantly you're only really fighting them occasionally so the fact that there there are a few fifth edition core monsters in like the 2014 monster manual that have weird abilities that just don't make sense or that they just break it like you're you're cursed with a thing and you can never get rid of the curse because it never said how to get rid of the curse it never said like hey you can use a lesser restoration to get rid of this so like when you lose strength points certain monsters when they drain your strength you can't get rid of them that doesn't matter as much but when twilight cleric comes out and twilight sanctuary comes out and the way that twilight sanctuary works is just borked 
it's permanent. I'm so tired of the conversations about silvery barbs, right? Like silvery barbs was a spell in one source book for Imagine the Magic the Gathering setting. YouTube video with 750,000 views talking about how much it has screwed up games. The only time I ever hear about silvery barbs is either somebody complaining about like, what the hell is this spell doing in my game? Or other people talking about how it's just fine. I never hear anybody just talking about the spell like they talk about another spell. And it's one of like six spells that comes up constantly. And that was like in this little side book that happened where you shouldn't even be bringing it into your game anyway, unless you're playing in Strixhaven. Like, why are you letting every spell in? Do you let every spell in from every other publisher? Or do you just think that the spells that Wizards of the Coast publishes are canon and therefore you can include all of them? Because they're not and you shouldn't. So, but clearly they need to do a lot of testing of stuff that happens with characters because that stuff really affects the game overall. Where things for Dungeon Master's Guide, things for monsters and stuff like that, you just kind of move on. The fact that the Dungeon Master's Guide is really poorly organized probably has hurt 5th edition overall, but it hasn't made our games unplayable, right? But certain character class options can make the game either unplayable or a lot less fun to play if it's done incorrectly. So I think focusing a lot of the playtesting on player-focused stuff on, on character options, I think is really important. It is a 54-page playtest that is covering a bunch of classes, the Barbarian, the Fighter, you know, going back to the Fighter, lots of new paths that they cover, and a handful of spells. I'm going to pick on one spell in particular. The Sorcerer, new, new stuff for the Sorcerer. So they're going back and refining. And I think that's good. The Warlock, because they, they, had, they had issues with the Warlock. And I'll be honest... I don't really pay because I'm typically GMing. I don't pay a lot of attention to the player options. I am hoping there are people who do. And I'm hoping there are people specifically looking at character options saying, hey, this is going to have a detriment detrimental effect on your game later. There was one ability I heard about, which was the barbarian. And this drove me a little bananas. And so I, you know, if I take the survey, I'm going to try to jump right to it, which was something about rage lasting 10 minutes. So you imbue yourself with primal power, rage grants you extraordinary might, blah, 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 blah. You can enter it as a bonus action, provided you aren't wearing heavy armor, while active rage has the following effects. Rage lasts until the end of your next turn, and it ends early if you don heavy armor or have the incapacitation. If your rage is still active on your next turn, you can extend the rage for another round by doing one or more of the following. Make an attack roll, force an enemy to make a saving throw, take a bonus action to extend your rage. Each time your rage is extended, it lasts until the end of your next turn. You can maintain a rage for up to 10 minutes. So in other words you can actually fire off your rage outside of combat and then use it for other things. And you're like, okay, that's cool. But then there are some rage effects that let you give temporary hit points to people. And the weird bit that you run into is if you basically can do that for 10 minutes and you, you just max, you, you, you like roll and roll and roll until you hit the maximum. And that's the maximum amount of temporary hit points that people get. And that reminded me of the healer gun that artificers had and it had this weird effect that you could use the healer gun outside of combat and if you did instead of they got so many temporary hit points based on like a d8 plus something that they instead got you would just keep rolling the d8 till eventually you hit eight and it was a clunky it was like instead either make the amount of temporary hit points equal to a fixed amount so that's the maximum they can get don't make it tied to a die roll because then the way it would actually supposed to play out is you keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling until eventually you hit the max because 10 minutes 
is, I don't know how many rounds, 60 rounds or something like that. I don't know. That's a lot of rounds. And like you're rolling and rolling around or the DM just says, just take the max. Right. And then you're just sort of like hand waving, like the whole thing is like, just if you're going to rage outside of combat and if you're going to maintain your bonus action to rage and your rage lets you get temporary hit points to either yourself or to others, then just max it out because we're not going to sit here waiting for you to roll a maximum on the die. That's just dumb. And instead it should be a fixed amount. So it worries me. 10 years into development of 5th edition, developers who are spending their time focused on this full-time playtests that have been going on for like a year now, and we're still seeing problems like that. And there's still classes out there that exist that have these problems. And it's like, I've seen it happen a lot. I've gone to Adventurers League and organized play events where the DMs already know about the fact that these things act weird and have a house rule that they just like, just, just do the max. I don't want to talk about it. Don't roll 38 D8s until you roll an eight. Just roll it, right? And it's like, we already have to come up with these hacks to deal with these weird abilities that like, if you use the rage outside of combat, this is something that has to occur. So I don't know. I mean, it's the first time they've done this, but it was like, it didn't take people five seconds to see it and go, oh, isn't this going to be weird that you have to roll temporary hit points, but you can just roll forever until you get the max? Like make it proficiency bonus, right? It's, <laughs> I don't know. So I'm a little worried because like, well, what else are we, what, what are we going to miss? And in between play testing, what's going to come out that isn't going to have this stuff tested and it's just going to come out and now that's going to be the way it is, right? And now we're coming up with all new house rules. And if we have to come up with all new house rules to handle weird, dumb mechanical effects that nobody actually thought through when the book was published, I can already do that. I already have the fifth edition books from 10 years ago and they work pretty well. So what are we improving on that? We're now adding a whole bunch of new stuff that we have to house rule. Like the idea that the, that the 2024 books are actually going to be better. I don't know that that's true. They will be better in certain ways. Absolutely. And then they might inject a whole bunch of new stuff that we have to fix in other ways. Right. And then some stuff is just not going to get fixed. Right. There are some things that aren't, are just not going to work. And now I'm going to prepare for a sly flourish rant. We're going to have a rant about one thing. I'm going to jump all the way, all this stuff. I'm going to skip all of it because I only care about one thing. And that's counterspell. We're going to talk about counterspell. Prepare, prepare for a talk about counterspell. I hate counterspell. I just do. You, I know you love it. You don't have to tell me that you love it. That's cool. I'm glad you're happy. If it works fine for you, you're good. You don't need me to tell you it's not working. If it works for you, it's working. If it works for me, it's working. If it doesn't work for me, it's not working, right? So we get to decide whether it's working for us or not. And counterspell just sucks. And I'll tell you why counterspell sucks. It sucks in so many ways. But it takes a game that is a free-flowing, cooperative story-based game and immediately turns it into blue deck Magic the Gathering. So the new counterspell... It's still a reaction, 60-foot range, yada, yada, yada. You attempt to interrupt a creature in the process of casting a spell. The creature must make a constitution saving throw. On a failed save, the creature, the spell dissipates with no effect, and the action, bonus action, or reaction used to cast it is wasted. If that spell was cast with a spell slot, the slot isn't expended. So it actually is now a benefit to characters more than it is a benefit to monsters. We never cared whether or not monsters lost spell slots because they're about to die anyway. Characters definitely hated losing a spell slot on top of losing a spell. So it's now more in favor of characters and player characters characters in, in specifics but it still has all the same problems that counterspell has do you know what spell is being cast so the the, the smooth form of counterspell the way that we normally play DD, many of us play DD, is you say the evil wizard cackles with glee and then hurls a fireball into the middle of your party it explodes you each take 28 damage dc 14 dexterity saving throw to take half all right bang done and instead they go oh wait i'm gonna counterspell that and you're like 
shit, I already told you that it was a fireball. I shouldn't have told you that it's a fireball. So then it's like, okay, what do you have to do instead? So instead you say, the evil mage cackles and begins to cast a spell. And then you pause and you look around the table. And it's like the eye scene from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everybody's eyes shifting back and forth. You look over at the bard. The bard looks at you. The bard looks over at the wizard. The wizard looks at the bard. The wizard looks over at you. And then somebody says, I want to counter it. And you're like, oh, okay. And they're like, but I don't know what spell it is. What spell are they casting? And I'm like, ah, you don't know. And they're like, well, how can I figure out what spell is casting? And you're like, well, I think Xanathar's Guide had a section on it. So let's look at Xanathar's Guide. Xanathar's Guide says that, yeah, you can use like an intelligence check to figure it out, but you have to have, you, you have to know the spell or something like that. And by the way, it's a reaction. But if it's a reaction, that means I can't counter spell. That's right. You can't counter spell. Ah, but what if I use my reaction to figure out the spell and then I yell it over the wizard and the wizard casts counter spell? And you're like, okay, we'll do that. Right? Holy crap like how much i mean it was just supposed to be a fireball so first of all reactions are already a pain in the ass because reactions interrupt the flow of the game they do that's why it's a reaction you're reacting to something i attack you with a sword shield i already get bothered by and shield is super fast shield is like the guy attacks you he rolls a 26 to hit and he's like oh, i'm gonna shield on that okay bang right but all of the reactions require that instead of having a smooth path that goes straight from an action into the result, you now have to pause and go through these steps to figure out whether something occurs. And counterspell is that way. Jeremy, we went back, we were arguing about this on the Slyflares Discord a little bit, and we went back to like Jeremy Crawford talking about what the intentions were, and his intention was you shouldn't know what spell you're countering. But that still means you have to then say, hey, I want my, wiz my the wizard starts to cast a spell, and then are you going to counter it? You have to know that they're going to do it. So pause the game, look over the people who have counterspell and say, are you going to, are you going to counter it? That just sucks. Also, losing actions sucks so even though you're not burning a spell slot losing an action sucks and as a character when you lose an action it sucks and one character burning a reaction at a third level spell to steal the action of another character who might have hit a bunch of dudes that sucks it sucks for everybody players certainly don't want to get counterspelled like imagine if you had like a bunch of warlock whites that were running around and they're counterspelling people all the time your players would hate you it sucks stealing their actions. It, they don't want to lose their actions. They, you know, the fact that they don't lose their spell, that's better. But losing an action sucks. Like it takes 12 minutes to go around. Action, action denial sucks. Level up advanced 5e, on the other hand, has a fantastic way of handling counterspell that I will probably house rule straight into my game. So counterspell for level up advanced 5e has an interesting way of doing it. If the creature is casting a spell second level or lower, the spell has no effect and fails. You just do it. If the casting of a spell is third level or higher, you make an ability check using your spell casting ability. So it works the same way the old counterspell works. On a success, the creature spell fails and has no effect, but the creature can use its reaction to reshape the frayed magic and cast another spell with the same casting time as the original spell. This new spell must be cast at a spell slot level equal to or less than the original so they can you essentially eat the spell but then they cast another spell and they have to burn their reaction to do so now the problem with the if you can't mix these two because if it doesn't eat a spell slot it really has no effect other than burning their reaction but i like this one better i would probably say that they would have to cast the spell at a level lower so they they still can reuse their reaction to cast a spell i would add that if that was on this one that the, the caster could then cast a spell of a spell slot lower than the one they cast. I would like that better. The other tricky bit with this version of Counterspell is a third level spell can stop a ninth level spell. That there is, you don't have to upcast this one to, to burn out spells of a higher level. You can just use this to make the opponent use a saving, the constitution saving throw and get it back. Now, the nice thing is it doesn't affect legendary resistance. It doesn't bypass legendary resistance, which means legendary monsters are not going to have their spells eaten by this. They'll just burn a legendary resistance to stop the counter spell. You know what's better? Not having counter spell. And honestly, like in my games, I would just, I would just tell players, I'd be like, look, 
It's not a house rule or anything, but I'll make it an arms. We'll have an arms agreement here. You don't counterspell. I don't counterspell. My monsters won't counterspell your spells. You're, 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 you don't counterspell. How, how do we feel about that? Now, there are some monsters that have special abilities that counterspell, and you're like, you're getting rid of those special abilities. I think it's worth it because I think counterspell is a big drag. There's thus ends the Sly Flourish rant. Anyway, take a look at the playtest, send them their feedback. Yes, you're spending a lot of time and money giving a commercial corporation free labor to playtest their stuff, but we do care about this game and it would be nice to give them the feedback. I'm also very curious, and, and you can tell me this, send me a comment, send me emails, talk to me in Discord. What are the other things you find in this playtest that you think are going to be a drag on the game or make a DM's life harder? Those are things I'm particularly interested in. If you find instead, hey, by the way, they've added these things and this makes the game better for GMs and makes the game smoother and more fun to run. I want to know those too. Those are the things I'm really focused on. The inner, the inner nitpicky stuff, class balance stuff, power differential stuff, I don't really care about i care about is the game continuing to run smooth or even run smoother and is life getting easier or harder for the gm to run those are the things that i really care about take a look it's available it's it's free sign up for dini beyond and you can you can take a look big big play test my friend joe wetzel over at inkwell ideas has a new kickstarter for fantasy side quest and npc decks i really like these decks so it's a it's a deck of playing card sized cards they have an npc portrait on one side they have an npc description on the other but then there's also side quest decks which have very small locations with maps on them and on the back give you enough material to run some interesting locations it's a really cool improvisational aid he's run kickstarters like this in the past and uh, you can take a look at exactly like the kind of things they've got different different formats i think this one's focused mostly on fantasy but he has a bunch of ones for different sort of settings if you want a science fiction one if you want things like that and the nice thing about these 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 decks and the uh, kickstarters is that you can always jump in and get kickstarter you can get the older decks that have come out and decide what you want to get you can get pdfs as well as physical cards the physical cards are great if you're sitting around a game table and you just want to say it looks like this guy and you, you take the card and show the picture of it really really handy you can grab screenshots of the pdfs and you can drop them like into discord showing them stuff gives you a nice group of of different npc portraits and different npc descriptions that you can use to me the portraits are really the valuable thing having a picture I can pull out and I can show to my players and say, this is the dude at the tavern. Then you can like take that card and you can put it with your notes so that you can always refer back to that picture of the guy. I think that, I think that that works really well. It's a really, really cool thing. So check out his Kickstarter for the fantasy side quest and NPC decks from Inkwell Ideas available right now on Kickstarter. You can find a link to it in the show notes. I have talked before about my, what is it? Concern, my concern about a lack of competitiveness when it comes to having 5e character builders out there on the web. And one of the groups I was looking at that I was paying attention to is Demiplane. Demiplane is where Adam Bradford went. Adam Bradford was one of the lead, if not the lead guy for D&D Beyond before D&D Beyond became, got bought out a couple of times and then got bought up by Wizards of the Coast. And during one of those buyouts, Adam left and started and started working with some other founders, co-founders on a new project for Demiplane, which is building web-based access, building a web-based interface, building web tools and 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 mobile tools to access lots of role-playing game material. And they had not been spending a lot of time on 5th edition yet. They've probably been spending a lot of time on it, but they didn't have anything to release for 5th edition. But now they do. They've started releasing 5th edition content on five on on demiplane some of the stuff that they've got includes the Taldorai setting which critical role was talking about on their show so there was this question because the Taldorai reborn setting showed up on D, D beyond and 
I was 95% sure there was no exclusive deal, but clearly there isn't because not only is it also available on Demiplane, but it is, they were, they were talking about it. They were kind of actively talking about how Talderai Reborn is available on Demiplane and many other RPGs. So if you, if you have lots of other RPGs, if you play other RPGs like Pathfinder or Avatar, they, you can, you can get those on Nexus as well. I had reached out to them and I'm probably going to be getting a access to it so that I can actually show you what it looks like. I want to show what some of these products are. I own these products on other platforms though, so I didn't want to just buy them outright, but I reached out to them and they said that they would set me up with an account so that I can show you the kind of things that they've got. Right now, they don't have character tools so that you can't build a character out of it, but you can have web-based a web view of these products that you can share with your players. So they can sign up, you can sign up, and there's some number of them that you can share it with. And that ability to share character-focused information to them is a really, really valuable tool. It's a way to ensure that you have uh, a, a wider range of different 5e published material that you can share with your players. And they have a, uh, a whole bunch of different publishers. Let's see if we go to our 5e... So they have a bunch of different publishers that are on board. I, I don't know that they have a lot of different products from these publishers yet. But Cobalt Press, for example, put up Toma Beast 1 and 2, including the new version of Toma Beast. That's available on there. Ghostfire Gaming has the Grim Hollow Monster Grimmar. So it looks like right up front, there's a lot of different monsters that you're going to have on here. So there's a couple of different publishers. And of course, we have Darrington Press with Taldorai Reborn, which is a setting. So we're starting to see things. I bet you publishers are starting to kind of experiment with this. Sure, we'll try it out. We'll give you a couple of different products. We'll see how that works. So hopefully this expands. And I have high hopes for this and, and and why so why why am i so eager to see uh demiplane and the 5e nexus on demiplane do well and then always worried about what's happening with dd beyond and the reason why is that you know who's not going to be a direct competitor of other publishers on this platform is demiplane demiplane i i, I get they, they have their own kind of sponsored rpg product i believe i think that they're in tighter with a marvel multiverse game i don't really know exactly what the deal is than they are with like other publishers it's not like they took a third-party publisher and bring them on the platform but when it comes to 5e which is really you know i focus a lot on 5e stuff the fact that it is going to be a fair platform for all publishers to be able to publish there i think is outstanding Anybody from Wizards of the Coast happens to be listening to my little show here and is in a position to either influence it, please consider supporting Demiplane. It would be really awesome to see official Dungeons and Dragons products supporting Demiplane like it's supported on D&D Beyond, like it's supported on Roll20, like it's supported on, on Fantasy Grounds. And then I'd like to see it extend to demiplane and i'd love to see it extend to foundry and other platforms too if if there's if it's really like you know if we're trying to get out of this idea of having like non-competitive spaces put it out on all the platforms and let us decide which platform works best for us guess what dnd beyond is still going to be the number one source by far where people are going to go find dnd related material roll 20 though i think it's it's head and head with roll 20 but support other platforms too. Let us choose which tools we want to use in order to get the platforms, in order to get the material that we want to get, I think would be outstanding. And it looks like they're doing a really good job. So I'm very eager to see it. When I get access to it, I would probably do another show where I can show one of the products. We can actually see what it looks like. Right now, you can just share main products. You can't build character builder stuff, but they're they're hard at work on doing character builder stuff. Apparently they have it for Pathfinder and apparently it's working really well for Pathfinder too. Again, a good resource for that. So let's let's see. Very eager to see it. I reviewed a book a couple weeks back called The Adventure Crucible by Robin Laws, a really fun book that talked about different adventure models, 
what the kind of keys to those adventure models are, what sort of the, the, the main hooks are to bring in those adventure models. It's a really, really good book. I highly recommend it. You can check out the review. You can also pick it up. There'll be a link to this book in the show notes. It had one small page in it where it talked about this thing called adventure pitfalls. So back in the book, there was a section called Fun Ruiners. And the Fun Ruiners took these scenario structures, dungeon, mystery, chain of fights, survival, and intrigue. Those are the five kind of adventure types that Robin focused on in this book. And talked about what are the things that get in the way of the fun part of those adventures. And it was like areas that can't be entered, areas that provide only one choice of where to go next for a dungeon, failure to gain information for a mystery, steps towards the next fight are not apparent in a chain of fights, a means of defense or escape are not apparent in survival, or NPCs who don't want anything from the NP from the PCs or negotiating partners the PCs have no way of meeting are are fun ruiners and I was like it's really that's very interesting but I think that that's a whole big topic like I think you could write a 54 page book just about the fun ruiners of RPGs what are the things that get in the way of a good time when it comes to an RPG. And I was like, I want to start thinking about this. I want to start talking to people about this. I want to get feedback from people on this. This is a topic where I really want to like dive deep and bring stuff back. And at first I was like, I'm going to write an article because when I go is, you know, whenever I get something, I'm going to write an article about this. This is important. I'm going to write an article. And the problem is that like, it would be an article that's like 50,000 words. So instead I'm like, I'm going to break this down into specific pieces and I'm going to focus articles on specific pieces and put them all together in a chain of articles that are called like adventure, what I'm calling adventure pitfalls right what are these what are these these fun ruiners and i started like jotting some notes down on what are the common things that i've heard about where the fun gets ruined when it comes to running to running these rpgs and you know i'm not sure even that adventure pitfalls is the right to refer to it because people might think like well from whose point of view is it from the point of view of the GM, like what's not fun for GM or what do players do that ruin it? Is it from the point of view of players of what GMs do to ruin it? Is it what adventure publishers are doing that make games bad? Is it about particular adventure style? So I think like, I'm not sure adventure pitfall is the right, but it could be like, you know, RPG session pitfall or something. But I'm what I'm looking for is like when it comes to the things that happen at the table, what makes the fun what breaks the fun? I just talked, yeah, somebody brings up Counterspell. Counterspell's a fun ruiner. And it is. And I'll tell you where it is. And that's because it removes agency, right? The issue with Counterspell is it takes something away from somebody. That Counterspell, the, 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 the value, the fun part of Counterspell is the fun you've taken from someone else. And that's why I think it sucks, right? I think you took away something that they that they were going to do. You took their action away. And that's why you know, players hate it when they get Counterspelled. And I'm pretty sure... GMs don't like it when their monsters get counterspelled unless you're expecting it, right? And like you can lean into it with lightning rods and you're like, I'm just going to put guys out there. There's the whole purpose is to cast spells. I get counterspelled. Okay, you can do that. Like that's light, lightning rods are a good way to do it. So I started jotting some stuff down and actually I think that there are, I'm going to start grouping these into topics, but here's just a list of some of the ones. When you can't find the clues that you need is a real fun ruiner. You want to go forward and you can't find any clues and you, you don't know how to get places. That, that, you know, you don't know what to do. Like that, that's a real drag for players when they feel like, and the GM, especially like the GMs who hold their co cards close to their chest, who are like, well, you didn't, you didn't search under the box. Like you're supposed to search under the box when there's no decisions to make scenes. I, I'm, I'm bad at this. I'm, I'm, this is something I do. I ruin, I ruin fun in my game. 
And one of the ways I ruin fun in my game is when I set up scenes that seem really interesting, but there's no decisions to be made. There's no choices. There's nothing to do. The players sit there and they watch an NPC talk to them or they hear about stuff and it's all exposition and they didn't roll a check. They didn't negotiate. They didn't make a choice. That's, that's, you know, not making a choice, not having a decision to make is a fun ruiner. Too many downward beats, definitely a fun ruiner that when you're going through a dungeon, you're getting traps sprung on you. You're fighting hard battles. You're getting worn down. More traps are sprung. You can't find what you want to find. You know, too many downward beats, too many, too much stuff. Oh, you got hit with another lightning bolt again. Oh, you, you made five foot steps. You got shot in the eye with a poison arrow. You know, that definitely is a fun ruiner. It makes people want to not play the game. Too much exposition, not enough action. That's kind of similar to the no decisions being made that essentially like just things are happening, but you're not really involved and your character's not really doing stuff. What are the things that you can do? Meaningless time sinks. Oh, we're rolling a random encounter. You're going to fight three bears in the woods. Not You're not going to learn anything from these bears. You're not. It doesn't actually propel the story forward at all. We're just going to have a combat in here. You see this a lot with like adventures where they're expecting, you know, I'm going to pick on AL adventures, but sometimes AL adventures will just have what I refer to as meaningless, the meaningless middle, right? That you have an adventure where it's like, well, it's four hours long. We need to put stuff in here. How about you fight some bears in the woods? Right. But there's no, you're not really, you didn't need to, it's not helping you get to the end of the adventure. You're not learning anything. The good ones, you learn stuff from every encounter that happens. Too much travel. Travel is a real drag. This is something that I'm struggling with with Empire of the Ghouls is, is making travel meaningful but not boring is hard. And when you're doing a lot of travel, the original Tyranny of Dragons Adventures had a lot of travel, thousands of miles of travel. Storm King's Thunder has tra- miles of travel. Empire of the Ghouls has miles and miles of travel. Too much travel can be a drag, it's, you know, unless you because like, you don't know what to do with it. Unclear goals or motivation. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Why would I go into this dungeon? I just went in there and got punched in the face. Why am I even doing this? If there's no good motivation, it's a fun ruiner. Like, well, I guess I'll just do this because the DM told me to. This is one of my struggles with like old school style adventures is that idea that treasure is worth more than your life. I don't know how much you can hang on to that these days. And so I think, you know, you need something more. Like what, what is it that makes the character want to do this thing that is willing to risk their life to do it? in lots of different places, I think is an important, um, important consideration. 15 minutes of fun in a four hour bag. It's a quote that Wolfgang Bauer had in one of the Kobold guides. I can't remember which one. And he referred to somebody that had just started playing RPGs. It was like, it feels like 15 minutes of fun in a four hour bag. How do you make things move? And that's really about pacing. How do you keep the pacing going? How do you keep the spotlight moving so that everybody gets a chance to do stuff? Lots of stuff like that. Taking away player agency, character agency. When you take things away from the characters, stunning. Oh, they got stunned. Sorry, you're stunned. You have to go another round. Oh, you got knocked down right before your turn. Make a death save. When you take agency away from the characters, there's stuff that can happen like in combat that takes away agency. Oh, you're charmed and I want you to attack your friend, but I'm going to make you do it. You don't actually get to do anything when you, that's no fun, but also taking agency away from them in, in the story that they, they just have to move from point A to point B. They don't really get a choice. Again, that matter of that, that idea of choice that taking away agency really is an issue in, in lots of different ways. And some of the worst, the most egregious, which are like common, they're like, oh, you got captured. All your stuff's gone. You don't know where it is. You're in a cell, figure it out. And you're like, great. The best thing that can happen is for me to get back to where I started. That sucks. My wife has a story, a couple different stories. One where she was playing a game and it was in fourth edition times and that they were like a paragon tier fourth edition. So it was like, you know, above 10th level. And they said, you only get to use at will abilities. You can't use your encounter abilities or your dailies or any of your triggered. You can only use your at will abilities for this whole adventure. She's like, why do I have all this stuff and I can't use it? And she just hated the, and she doesn't remember like what happened in the adventure or why that was the case. It doesn't matter. You just took two thirds of her toys away. 
right? Why would you do that? When you cap, you have somebody that gets captured, it's the worst. Don't have characters purposefully get captured unless the story drives it that way without you forcing it. If they're in a battle and they lose the battle legitimately, you didn't stack the deck. You didn't do, uh, there was an Adventures League adventure where you're like 50 drow surround you and shoot you with sleep bolts. Right. Oh, ha, you got captured. We let you fight it out, but you still got captured. No, you didn't. You just threw 50 drow with sleep bolts on us. So when you force capture, that's the worst. The, the only time that that can work is if you do it right in the beginning. Out of the Abyss does a really good job. It's the only way I've seen capture work, which is you start captured. You didn't lose anything because you never had anything to start with. You started with nothing. And now a kobold sword is really, really good. That's different because you're not taking something away. You're not taking away agency. And it's it's just not, you know, taking away agency in the form of the abilities that they have, taking it away in the form of the choices that they can make and the types of actions that they can take or the lack of actions that they can take. That loss of character agency is a big one. And that was actually the first article that I wrote on this was just on that, just on the idea of don't take character agency away because it just ruins the game for people. Save your NPCs. I've heard stories of people where, oh, we do this thing. My, my favorite one was from World of Warcraft where you were fighting the Lich King. And you got you and all of your raiding friends together to go fight the Lich King. And it was like this three-phase, 30-minute, big boss fight. And then at the end, he kills all of you. He just does it. Bang, you're all dead. And all your guys fall over dead. And then miraculously, the magical NPCs show up and resurrect all of you again. And then, like, kill the Lich King. And you're like, Why, where were you a half hour ago? First of all, why didn't the Lich King just kill us all and make us waste 30 minutes of dancing around on Tron-like weird, you know, circle things where you'd fall off and die? Why do that when you could just kill us all outright? And then why wouldn't the NPC, why, why am I even here? The NPC just, I'll be back in the tavern. I'll do, I'll be doing the dancing over in the bazaar on one of the little pillars. You know, like why even do that? So don't have NPCs come in and save the day. I, I had a game once where we got captured, which already sucked. We're in the cells, which already sucked. We're trying to negotiate our way out of the cell. That didn't work. We, even though we we're rolling really high. We have, we're trying to pick the locks. That's not working. We're using abilities we should be able to use. Like, can I mage hand? Well, no, they've used ma anti-magic stuff here. So th everything that we tried, which was, we tried a lot and it went on for like a half hour. And then an NPC came and saved us. And we're like, and it was clear it wasn't because we didn't figure out how to get out because we came up with some pretty ingenious ways of getting out. It was because the the the, the story was the the, the and, and the NPC was going to come and save us. That's really bad. There are all these different pitfalls. I think this is a really deep topic. I think there's lots of different ways to think about what are the ways that adventures tend to fall down that are common, that, that happen, that actually happen at our table. And how do we make sure that that stuff's not fun anymore? So something I'm going to be paying more attention to. I'd love to hear your ideas. Please leave comments, send email, talk about it in Discord. Tell me what you think about what common adventure pitfalls, what are common things you see that happen that you've experienced that maybe you've done. Let's be honest with ourselves. I do some of these things. I've made these mistakes. You know, that we do these things sometimes because they feel right at the time. And you're like, oh God, I just made this the whole game not much fun because I was like being too hard on them or I didn't take control of certain things or I took control away from things. We do these things. So what are yours? What are the ones you've seen as players? What are the things you've seen as GMs? What are the ways, what are the pitfalls for our games? Things that we put in place with the best of intentions and they fall flat and they actually make the game worse. That's, I'm really interested in that idea. I've talked about 
things that are available to patrons of Sly Flourish. I'm going to show one of them off. I have a few bunch of different things that patrons of Sly Flourish get, but kind of each week I want to take one and I want to highlight it. And there's one here. I've talked about it before, but I want to talk about it again because I think I think even patrons don't necessarily know that I have something like this. I mention it, but I'm not sure that they even necessarily know that I have it. So as you know, I do this show every week. And on this show, I talk about many different topics. And I've been doing it now for a few years. And I do Patreon questions where people ask me questions about RPGs. And we talk about those questions. And we talk about potential solutions and things like that. We put all that stuff in there. But I want to talk today about the Lazy GM talk show topic database. So what I have done and what I do every week, I went back and looked at all previous episodes of the talk show. And I now do it every week when we do a new one as I keep up a database of all of the topics we talk about on the shows. So these aren't just links to the shows. They're links to the individual segments of every show that I've done. There are now uh, 1,400 of these topics, any given topic that you want to have, and it all pops up on this database. You can go in here and you can do a search and you can say like theater... Theater of the Mind, and you get three different times where I've talked about Theater of the Mind and Abstract Maps back in 2023, that was earlier this year, Tactical Combat and Theater of the Mind, RPGs that emphasize Theater of the Mind, and you can click on them, and it goes straight to that topic in in the show. So you're skipping, you, you don't have to go through the whole show, you can go just to that topic. 1,400 of these. Every Patreon question that I've talked about is in here. You can also, if you just want to see like, you know, I just want to see the Kickstarter spotlights. You can do just Kickstarter Spotlight and search on that. And that shows you the 76 different Kickstarter Spotlights. Oh, there's where I talked about Nave too. What, what, what did I have to say about that? Right? We can figure that out. Hey, now that Mike's actually been playing Shadow Dark, it would be kind of fun to look at when he did the Shadow. Now, instead of looking at Shadow Dark, you could just type in Shadow Dark. You know, there's a Shadow Dark RPG Kickstarter Spotlight back in March, right? And you can see what I had to say about it. So all of the shows... All of the links to all of the individual segments of all of the shows that I have done, I don't know how far back it goes. How far back does it go? Back to 2020. So three years worth of these shows are now available with all of the links. This is an exclusive feature to patrons of Sly Flourish. So if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can get access to this database. It's actually a really great way to see if you're going to ask a Patreon question, whether or not somebody's already answered this question. Or you go back and you say, yeah, well, he did, but he didn't answer the specific thing that I want. But I went and looked at the other ones. And now I want this other take on that or it changed or something. You have lots of different ways that you can use this. But, you know, I create a lot of stuff, right? And I talk about a lot of stuff. And the way I look at these is like, here's 1,400 topics that I've talked about over the past three years that you can get access to every single individual one with a single click off of a single database. And I think an hour later, the database is up to date. It's automatic. I have Python scripts, magical Python scripts in the background. Actually, yeah, it's a whole process. Sundays is when I actually set up all the videos. One of the things when I'm running my Python scripts that help me get the videos ready for YouTube is it generates a giant CSV, a giant comma separated file with all of the links and all the topics and all the stuff. And then it's generated into this beautiful HTML page. Beautiful, it's boring HTML page, but it works really well and it works on mobile. So it's really nice. And it's very fast. The search is really, really quick because it's all happening browser-based. So that is the Lazy RPG Talk Show database. One, Just one of many different features you get for becoming a patron of Flares. Please consider signing up. You can find it in the show notes. I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3. 
and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. I don't have a PC capable of running Baldur's Gate 3, the PC version, so I instead got the PlayStation 5 version a few days ago. I've started playing it. I'm like eight or nine hours in. I really enjoy it. The typical interaction of a 5e game, which is a typical interaction of almost any sort of D20-based game, the, the GM describes the situation. The GM describes what's going on. The player, hearing that description, says that they want to do something. If there's a meaningful opportunity for failure, if there's a reason why this might fail in a, in a, in a way that, that still is part of the story then the gm might call for a check and they would say like in order to do this thing you're gonna have to roll a check the dc the difficulty class for this check is going to be some number usually between like 10 and 25 and the and then you tell them what ability is this going to be this is going to be a dc 15 intelligence check if you are trained in arcana you can add your proficiency bonus for arcana and then they would roll the check and then you tell them what they learned because of the check that they made. But if you think about that, it's basically GM describes the situation, player describes what they want to do. If there's a meaningful chance for player, the GM calls for a check and the GM tells you what ability you're going to roll on. And then you tell the results based on whether you've succeeded or failed. And that's described in the player's handbook. It's described in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's described in lots of different places. One of the things that I do though, and I have, a, I have an article that I wrote about this, which you can find down in the show notes called called Our Ability Check Toolbox. I wrote this back in 2018. It's probably due for a refresh. It's a long article. It's got a lot going on in this article. And it talks about lots and lots and lots of different ways that you can use ability checks for lots of different things. Lots of ways that are, and it, and it talks about where its rules is written and then where it deviates. Hey, these are other ways you can use it. But one of the common ways that I use ability checks is before players even describe what they want to do, I will call for a check. So the example is, I would say like you, you know, you're with torches lit, you're walking down the hall, you can see spider webs weaving from the heat of your torch and they expose interesting pictograms that are on the wall. Anyone who is trained in history can make an intelligence history check. And I just jump straight to it. And then, oh, you know, oh, I've got history. I've got history and I'll roll, right? And then they, you know, the, the people who have history, they roll. And you say, from the picture, whoever succeeded if, on the assumption they succeeded, if they all roll, like, oh, we all rolled a six. I'm like, the pictograms are strange to you. You don't know what they say. But it could be, oh, no, you see these, the twisted forms of a tentacled beast, which you know is Demogorgon that's on the wall or whatever. Probably that would be a religion check. But you could also do history or religion. Or you could do history, religion, arcana. You can, you can do that. And it's really smooth. I always felt like I was sort of going against what fifth edition expected when I was doing so. I always felt like, yeah, it's a shortcut. It works for me, but it's kind of not the way the rules as written work. And then what I discovered playing Baldur's Gate 3 is that's exactly what it does. That my four characters will be wandering through the woods and all of a sudden I'll hear the clink of dice as all four of my characters make nature checks and they all go, ooh, and three of them are like, pew, 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 as they all fail. And then one guy's like, dling, and it's like, hey, there's a thing under that rock. And you go and you find a magic chest and you dig it up and you get like a magic chest with some stuff in it. And I was like, that's really interesting. That's, it's kind of fascinating that the game has this way where as the characters are just walking through the world, they will roll checks. It's not passive checks. You could say like, well, that's how passive checks work, right? But really for passive checks, you really only use passive insight, perception, and investigation. You typically don't do like a passive nature check or passive arcana check. And instead, what you do is you, you, you roll. And obviously in a computer game, it's really easy to just in the background be rolling dice and say, oh yeah, they, they managed to succeed. I remember like I went into a particular cave and I saw, this is a little bit, tiny, tiny little spoiler, but very, very little. Went into a cave and it's like a bunch of characters rolled and they said, oh look, it's a temple to saloon. What is a temple to saloon doing down here in this old musty cave? 
and it's because they made the checks and they succeeded and then it was like a bunch of other people and they're like oh there's a treasure chest over there and a bunch of checks and everybody failed this arcana check and i'm like i'm gonna open it up boom and i blew up right so it was like it was like you know we all made the check over here we all failed the check over here but what i find is that shortcut is actually a really smooth way of keeping the game moving forward it means that you're you're, you are taking control a little bit of like the characters are noticing things that the players wouldn't notice. There's a little risk of like the player who's sitting there on their phone, you know, playing Marvel Snap while you're running the game that they aren't even paying attention to the fact that you're walking down a hall and you're seeing mosaics because you're not even saying to them, hey, do you want to do anything in the hall? And they're oh, yeah, I want to investigate that you're just rolling it for them. There's a little bit of that, like it becomes this sort of passive ability that you just assume the checks are rolling. So there's a little bit of a worry there, but it also makes the game run really smoothly. And you can very quickly say anybody who's trained in a certain skill, that's another shortcut that I do that isn't really rules as written, which is that you typically don't say that you don't lock things behind skill proficiencies. You shouldn't. You shouldn't lock vital things behind skill proficiencies. But I think saying only those who are trained in religion, arcana, or history can make these checks is a way to say you're rewarded for the fact that you picked those skills. Only someone trained in athletics or acrobatics could possibly do this one thing. Even though you could roll and you could roll really well, you're not trained in it. They're trained in it. They've done this kind of thing before. And then, of course, you can use training in a skill proficiency to automatically succeed on something. You already Those who are trained in arcana already know this. You don't have to roll. Because you're trained, you're already you already know it those are like and that's all discussed in this like abilities check toolbox idea but it was it was justifying to me to see it work in a computer game that as the characters were wandering through skill checks were just happening and the results of them were coming right out and skipping over the idea that the characters have to be active participants in every time in every time that they want to interact with something outside of like perception and investigation and insight that that worked really well it was a it was something that kind of was eye-opening to me it, it gave me some justification for the way that i've been like secretly running things and not really want to tell people you know i did talk about it in the i've talked about it before but that idea of like you sometimes you can just roll checks automatically and if you if sometimes you could roll checks where it isn't based on training everyone can make the check and whoever rolls the highest is the one that discovers the vital piece of information even if they rolled low whoever got the higher roll they their character because they rolled high now they're the one that can do it i talked with some other fellow designers about this on friday i mean you have like a friday chat with a bunch of designers get together and we talk about stuff and i asked them about it and they brought up the point that like you know a lot of times you hear advice which is don't roll arbitrary checks like, don't, don't just ask players to roll when it doesn't really matter. If they need to learn something, they should just learn it. And we all kind of agreed in that chat that, that that's not great advice. Or at least we have, we have found that to be contrary to the enjoyment of our game. Players like rolling dice. I like having players roll dice. It's fun. So you doesn't mean you have to lock something behind it or that they can't get... I think, what, I think the argument about don't roll arbitrarily is like, don't make somebody roll to open a door if they've got to get through the door for the adventure to move forward. But you could also say they're going to get the door open. It's how badly or how much do they succeed? I've had people roll like an athletics check to like lift open a big door and they rolled like a five. And I was like, you still managed to pull up this big iron portcullis, but you get this pain that starts at your left shoulder blade and radiates down to your left buttock. And it's like, you know that you're going to be feeling that for the next three days. There's every time you get up off the bed, you're going to feel that line and it's going to be there for like the next three days. It's going to really suck. No, a greater restoration won't fix 
exit. You know, true resurrection, killing yourself and true resurrection, you'd wake up and you'd still have that line in your back. There's just no way to get rid of it. And it's like, it's a little flavorful thing. It has no effect in the game. You're not saying you're minus one and checks from now on. You don't have to do anything like that. You just can use those roles to kind of shake up the story. So I think having players roll a lot is totally cool. And I think we want to roll the dice. We like rolling our dice, right? We had a bunch of, there must have been more than a hundred years worth of experience in that in that chat we were talking about. And all of us were agreeing, like, we like rolling dice. Players like rolling their dice. Don't, you know, don't shy away from asking your group to roll a dice check. Even if you're like, well, clearly they can't fail. If I ask everybody in the group to roll a check and the DC's 12, so they, you know, you what you can do is say, who did the best? They're the one that really discovered. I've definitely had the shade of gray where like, you know, this part of it, but because you rolled above a 20, you know, even more. You could, there's all kinds of stuff. So check out our ability check toolbox. I'm probably going to read through it again and update it because I think it's worthy of an update. But it was really interesting to see this play out in Baldur's Gate 3. And I, I really enjoyed it. Let's do some Patreon questions. We have a new batch of Patreon questions from September 2023. These are This is a Q&A that I put up on Patreon every month. Patrons can put up any RPG-related question. I answer all of them on Friday mornings. Some of them I bring here to the show. Some of them become catalysts for other articles or other videos that I do. Alex W. says, How far off is Baldur's Gate in terms of how D&D actually works in real life? Baldur's Gate 3 really helped me getting my TTRPG fixed, but I'm not sure if it's an accurate realization of the true and blue TTRPG experience hey i just talked about this right that like that it's been really fun i it is definitely fifth edition it's really cool i've been talking my, all my friends are playing it and we're all talking about it all the time and they're uh, more ahead of me than i am they've been playing for a month i've only been playing for a few days but we all kind of agree it's fun and what i like about it is that i know it i know the, how the system works i i can when i played divinity original sin 2 which i loved done by the same publisher really really good but they had their own system that you had to kind of learn about now it's pure fifth edition so i know what the spells do the other thing that that baldur's gate 3 does that's fantastic is that it use a lot of the spells that you tend to not pay attention to matter a lot so like speak with animals is huge i don't have it yet and i'm sad i actually just got some potions of speak with animals and i want to go immediately use them and talk to a bunch of animals because there's really fun things with speak with animals i was walking by and there's like three cows and again it rolled that group it rolled the group check and i rolled the nature check and it was like that cow is looking very intently at me <laughs> and i was like i bet i need to go talk to that cow right there's lots of Lots of ways where speak with animals matters. And so I don't have a caster that can cast speak with animals. But like, that's not a spell you would think is vital to the fun of the game, but it is. Speak with dead is critical to some parts of the game. You know, disguise self. There's all these like spells that are not sort of just blast things that have major effects in Baldur's Gate 3 that I think is really fun. In fact, probably more so than they even do in our TT, in our in our home games and our in our regular tabletop games, because we don't really pay attention to them that much. So it definitely has that that freedom and fluidity to it. Obviously, the number one thing that Baldur's Gate 3 is really missing is groups of people getting together to sit around a table and play games. So I don't think it's a replacement for DD. I think it's fun and I love it. And if you don't really have a DD group but you want to play DD, I think it's totally fine but you know but i think that it is still missing that you know human all of the people getting together the gm is building the world as you go like as much as there's like a story customization to it and it's really focusing on the characters a lot of character inner character development and all that stuff that's going on it can't be as much as a human being could do it, it's not as much as a gm a gm could do to really understand your character the choices that you're making while you're making it and and everything like that is i think is i think is really good 
Baldur's Gate 3 is multiplayer. Yeah, so Bonker Fictitious, Ficious, Bonker Ficious says Baldur's Gate 3 is multiplayer and plays differently with MP. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what it is like playing a multiplayer. And that's probably a very good group Bonker, just Bonker. He changed his name. So, you know, probably great to get your friends together to play Baldur's Gate. Again, I had a lunch with a good friend of mine yesterday and all we did was talk about playing Baldur's Gate. So there's still good social interaction. Even if you're playing by yourself, talking to other people that have played is bringing people together to talk about it. So there's definitely that. I'm not worried about it, it like overtaking the TTRPG experience too, but I think it's fantastic. And I'm really, really glad to see such an awesome game that is doing as well as it's doing that's as fun as it is that's also built on DD lore and DD fifth edition rules and everything like that it's really it's really fun some of the things that it's got that i think are really neat is like true it, it's got it, uh, guidance cheese it has guidance cheese built into it so a lot of gms kind of complain about how guidance is just this d4 if any character has it you're just adding a d4 into any check that you're doing and you know gm some gms are like no you have to say it in a certain way and you can't just do it all the time and then i was like hey whatever just add it who cares right like oh god god forbid you should succeed more often this one has that where like if you have a character as guidance you're just adding guidance to every role and it's it's really kind of funny but i, was, I thought it's funny they built a specific interface for the guidance cheese it's like just add guidance just add it add it just don't worry about it that's really fun so i like it i think it's great i think it captures a lot of the feeling of D, the lore is really there the the the, the, the how the spells all work is really there I, I i like it a lot i'm enjoying it a lot i'm not worried about it replacing my home ttrpgs i'm not canceling games i did have players who were joking about like yeah i had to question whether or not i should come to your game or go stay home and play Baldur's gate and i was like i hope you'll still come to our home and play D. so <laughs> they were joking about it i don't think it no, to my knowledge no one has yet not come to my game and would rather instead play Baldur's gate 3 so so that's good Ben H says, I recently started a combat where the players were against two creatures and on the first turn of combat, the more powerful of the two creatures was banished through banishment to their home plane. In response, I buffed the other creature, mainly tuning up the damage dial, but it kind of felt like I was invalidating what the characters did. In situations where a saver suck spell completely takes a creature out of a fight, how do you deal with it? Looking back, I kind of wish I had just had the other creature retreat instead. Yeah, it's, it's worth considering obviously we have the dials and the big question is what are you doing why are you changing the dials if you're changing the dials now and did the so another one is did the players notice so if you give a creature some extra attacks now because it's making up for the fact that the other one didn't have extra attacks did the players notice and they're like oh great this creature just got harder because the other one disappeared then you know, that's probably not great. Did you do it just because you're like, I, I, I expected the game to be at a certain challenge level and it wasn't, so I'm going to increase it to make sure the challenge level is still there. That might not be great either. It's it's hard. It's it's hard to ask why you should do something like that and why not. The way I refer to it, I talk about my four dials of monster difficulty, which is the number of monsters, the hit points of the monster, the amount of damage that they do on an attack and how many attacks they have. One of the things that I talk about a lot is that these dials have springs in them that want to spring them to the average. So you should start by just staking to the average and then only turn them if you think there's really a good reason, good fun, a good in-story way to do it. An example of like a dial that you can turn is like if you if you have players, say they're fighting a Helmed Horror. Helmed Horrors have really high armor classes and they don't do a lot of damage. They're actually kind of weakened that way. And maybe if you're running a Helmed Horror, you might say at a certain point it rips its armor off and the fire that is fueling it 
burns down to its sword and now it does an extra you know d8 or 2d8 damage on its attacks but now its armor class is only 15 instead of 18 because it ripped its own armor off to do so that you, you can turn those dials to hit a certain pace where it's like we're going to make it more dangerous but but weaker to hit because it's boring the way that we're doing it you can decide what you're doing and then why they're doing it and you might say like when he realizes he's by himself he goes into a rage and starts swinging twice and you're like maybe that makes sense but you have to look at it and say so it's 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 important to examine your feelings about why you felt like that was wrong but more importantly is what was the result at the table did it make the game better or not and if your answer is it didn't like i had a creature so i had a great big monster like this a similar situation where they were getting attacked by a huge yeti giant abominable yeti and they had just hit seventh level and it came roaring in and they banished it on round one and it, and it disappeared. This was also a creature they'd heard about for a long time. It was this particular, it was like a, it was all covered in blood. So it was red. It was a red Yeti. And they're like, they banished it and it went away. And then they were like, okay, everybody ready in action. Wait for the thing to come back. It pops back in. Then they all ready. They all attack with their readied actions and, and off it goes. That you know, and they beat it and they remembered it because they set up this whole strategic thing of I'm going to cast polymorph on you as a mammoth. You're going to charge in as a mammoth. You're going to do this extra damage in the mammoth and knock a prone. Then when it's prone, we're all going to come and beat, beat it to death. Right. And they had this like banish, you know, red Yeti banish mammoth prone technique that they're like, oh, we're going to use that for everything now. <laughs> and it was like this routine of like how to kill. It. And they did. They totally killed it. And I let them totally kill it. And then my reaction to that next time was, I'm now going to put more monsters out there for them to banish. So when they were fighting, like the ice, whatever her name was, I don't remember the adventure, you know, who was it? The Frost Maiden, right? They're fighting the Frost Maiden. And I had her rock flying around. And her rock has like 250 hit points and hits for like 50 damage. And they're like, if you don't banish that rock, you're in real trouble. And boy, they're just hammering banishes on it, trying to get rid of it. And finally they did. And like, now I got, no, nobody let my concentration get broken because we got to keep that rock away, right? That that... They, that was when I learned about lightning rods. It was actually that experience is what got me to think more about how lightning rods work in the game. So the big question is like, why, why do you think about, you know, why do you do the things that you do and how does it make sense in the world and how does it make the game more fun and how do the players feel about it? Is the real thing I'd be hanging on to? Were they excited by it? Did they still say, wow, this guy's hitting really hard now? Or do they say like, you're cheating, right? That, you, you know, figuring that out is a good question, but their dials are there for a reason. They're not there to discount players doing things. They are there to make the game fun. And the question is when they banish something and if the other part was weaker, is it more fun for it to just be weak? Probably. Or is it more fun for the thing to get beefed up and explode and now it's doing twice the damage that it was doing before? Maybe. It's hard to say. And it's, it's very much circumstantial on, on, on how all that works. So Ben, hopefully that gives you some ideas about how to think through the situation more so than just saying like, yes, you, you were totally fine to do it or no, that was bad. It's, but there's a lot of nuances there and how to tweak those dials and why to tweak them. And that's something we all have to learn. Nicholas H says, since you've been running Shadow Dark, what tips do you have for, for those coming from 5e to OSR for handling the rulings, not rules aspect of the game? I don't. This is a good question. And I am too young and new in this whole type of game to be able to really answer it. I can't, I can't say. Uh, if you watch my shows where I've been going through my Shadow Dark prep, then you can see how I'm trying to understand this myself. Sometimes I'm bringing my own ideas in from a style of game that does not necessarily match with the rulings, not rules style of the game. So it's definitely, I, I, I really don't have... I don't have enough experience to be able to speak to it. So this is a good question. I'm, I kind of put this in here because I think it's important. 
ask me in a year. Ask me at least when I'm done with Shadow Dark. When I've run my Shadow Dark campaign, I will at least have had a campaign underneath me where I could say, well, this is how, this is how I dealt with it. In the first four sessions, spe the specifics of handling rulings, not rules, is I mean, I kind of run that way already, right? I, I play pretty fast and loose with the rules for the fun of the game. And that idea that like we have tools in our toolbox of when to call for checks, when to have situations go a certain way, when to put the hard screws on the characters, when to let things light up. You know, I, I already I already have a rulings, I feel like I have a rulings not rules idea to it. Some of the other aspects of, of OSR, I don't hang on to very well. And I haven't hang, hung on to very well. That idea that the, 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 the GM is really a referee, not a facilitator. I can't get into that role. I don't want to be a referee. I don't want to be, my job is not to build a challenge, you know, that the characters may or may not overcome regardless of how fun it is. I'm not there to teach lessons to the players. I'm not there you know, I, I want the story to be fun and interesting. Fun and interesting stories can come from failure and I don't shy away from that. But I'm not going to put people through like a painful gauntlet that takes an entire session, you know, because it's boring. If, if, if it's boring, it's my fault, right? Like I, my, my job is to make the game interesting. There's, that interest can come from threat and failure and success and everything else. But I'm not willing to sit back and let the world operate without me tugging on some of the lines to make sure that the game is still fun for my friends who are sitting around the table. That's an aspect that I'm still dealing with and still understanding. And that's fine. Like we all have a different way, you know, we all have different ways that we run these games anyway. I'm really enjoying my Shadow Dark game and so are my my friends. And I, even though I've only taken, I don't feel like I've taken like massive control over it. And, you know, we'll see. And then maybe I'll screw up. Maybe I'll take too much control and I'll kind of ruin the fun of the game and they'll know. So we'll, we'll have to see. Benjamin M says, I have good ideas. And, uh, I have good ideas and use your preparation technique. However, during the heat of battle during my session, I tend to remember to incorporate about half of my ideas as I'm trying to keep the game moving and listening to my players. Any advice? Yeah, you're doing, you're doing great. Don't worry about it. Again, all of the rules of rules. They're not even rules. All of my guidance, all of the stuff that I offer in my various books and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and everything else are there to serve you and your game. If, you, if you're doing fine, if you feel like you've got what you need to run the game, if the players are enjoying the game and having fun, if you're having fun, if you feel you've, you've managed to, to push down some of the, that pre-game anxiety of like, oh my God, I don't have everything I need. If you've managed to get through that, it's working. Uh, on the idea of using about half, I've talked before about, about secrets and clues. We prep 10, I prep 10, and then I usually only give away about half of them. That's pretty consistent. And that's about right because I don't know which half I need and I don't know which half I don't. Uh, and I know I want to have more than I need because I don't want to run out. That's perfectly fine. Same way with NPCs, same way with treasure, same way with all of the stuff. Uh, probably that my, my experiences match yours that I use about half of what I'm using, but I don't know which half I need. So it's still worth prepping all of it because you want to know which parts you're going to necessarily need. It's the idea that you don't want to prep too much. You don't want to, you know, that three quest idea. If I'm going to offer three quests to the characters and they're going to pick one of them, I don't want to fill them all out because I don't know which one they're going to do and I don't want to spend too much time on two quests they're not going to go to. Stuff like that. Half, you're doing fine. Don't worry about it. Heat of battle is where you want to be, right? Running the game that's in front of you for the players that are in front of you, that's most important. The material that you have available should be supporting that, not the other way around. You don't run your game to match your notes. You write your notes to match your game. So that I think is an important point.
Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you like this show and you like the stuff that I'm talking about and you want more stuff like it, the best way to see all of the work that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can find a link to it in the show notes. You get a free adventure generator PDF and you get a article every week that has a full article plus a bunch of links to all of the other stuff that i've done that week so every week you get a newsletter that's kind of covering everything that i've managed to do in that one week you can also support me directly on patreon i've shown a bunch of different patreon features that you get there's lots of really cool stuff you get it's a very low price it's a great way to support me please consider subscribing to patreon and you can pick up any of my books all four fantastic books we have a new bundle on the store that includes fantastic locations fantastic adventures ruins of the Grenderoot, and fantastic layers in one big pdf package you can buy it all together with all the maps tons and tons of material that you get you can find that on the sly flourish bookstore as well thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg